Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome back to the New European Podcast. My name is Matt Withers. It's the afternoon of October the 13th, and Liz Truss is still Prime Minister. Depending on when you're listening, that might not be the case. With me today is my new European colleague, Eleanor Longman-Rude. When I was Ellie's age, there had been three Prime Ministers during my entire lifetime. Ellie, you may soon be on to your seventh. How does that make you feel? Um, weirdly old, Matt. Um, I'd like to say that it's, um, it's, you know, it's not my fault. We're not on to the seventh nearly potentially because of because of me. Um, but no, there's there's a running joke among friends my age, you know, that because of COVID, we're not counting the last two years in that classic rhetoric of, you know, the pandemic stolen, stolen our 20s and the fun times we could be having. Sadly, you can't quite stretch that across to the political time frame. It is when you say it like that, though, it genuinely is a bit weird because I haven't sort of seen a, a prime minister serve their full term, so to speak. I think I was 11 or 12 when we had the coalition government. So it is quite strange. Um I guess I could now out you, Matt, and ask which which were the three PMs that you that you had by the time you were my age. Um, so I was born um, just a couple of months after Thatcher took office. So I had Thatcher, Major, and then Blair. So I was twenty five in two thousand and five. So Blair would have just won his third term at that time, and then it was after that that things got a little bit crazy in terms of prime ministers. Yeah, anything for a slow news day at the moment, but but maybe not for a minute or two. <laughs> yes, yes. In in that uh, time, not only has that been your entire life, those seven prime ministers, it's also um, that encompasses the entire time that Tony has been in Hollyoaks, um, if people choose to count uh, their prime ministers by that metric. Um, coming up on the New European podcast, the New Europeans' very own Klarne Hanella. Uh, joins us to discuss Home Secretary Suella Braverman, who is on the cover of issue 312 of the newspaper. We'll be talking about her rise, her recent controversial comments, and where she's actually going. Could we see her behind number 10? And of course, we'll be putting more malignant ministers, bogus backbenchers, and poisonous pundits into our hall of shame. Before that, if you enjoy what we do at The New European, there really is no better way to support us than to subscribe. To make that decision easier for you, here's a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for just £1 a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to the print and digital package for just £2 a week. You'll have unlimited digital access, and our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. Wow! To take advantage of this brilliant exclusive offer and join our growing community of avid readers, subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk 
slash TNE podcast. So welcome back to the podcast and welcome back to Ellie. This week in the New European, your streaming review is of a German historical drama, The Empress. It's about a real life royal family. So inevitably, it's going to be compared to The Crown, isn't it? It is, yeah. So this week, I, as you say, reviewed and wrote about um, The Empress. So a bit of context, it's the new Netflix series that's based on the real life of, of Elizabeth of Bavaria, uh, known to the world and her family as Cece, um, and which she she hates and goes on and says about that constantly from the very first sort of opening 10 minutes. Um, and it's played, she's played by, in this reimagining, by Devrim Lingnau, and I apologise if I've absolutely butchered that pronunciation. Um, and yeah, it brings to life the story of this German princess turned Austrian empress who, despite her, you know, evolving titles, never aspired for a royal life at all. Um, And so we first meet these characters in the summer of 1853, when Elizabeth travels with her mother and her sister Helena to meet Emperor Franz Joseph, who's played by Philip Froissant. Um, And there's an assassination attempt on his life earlier that year in February. And so suddenly this race is on from his very verging on authoritarian mother-in-law uh, mother sorry to provide a wife and an heir to make sure that the empire is is secure if you know the worst should happen uh which is why helena is introduced um and she would be the you know she's portrayed as this perfect match she's very demure very um in awe of the whole pomp and circumstance of royal life and the royal court but because the course of true love never did run smooth, it's actually Elizabeth who captures the emperor's heart. And the rest, quite literally, is uh, is history. And as a character, you do you do sympathise with Elizabeth when you remember that, you know, she's 15. She's the younger sister. She's 15 when she meets him. She's 16 when they then inevitably marry, when he declares that actually it's it's her she's going to wed. Um, and then also, weirdly, you do sort of take note, or at least I took note of, what is classified of in that era of being a norm of, of when you're a woman of the royal court? She's very much a sort of declared a public vessel for an heir once once they marry her. Menstrual cycle is on like very much common chatter around everyone's conversation. She's fed breakfast of raw eggs and and other women's placenta to increase her fertility, which sounds a bit grim. Um, and she also has to endure a sort of very public virginity test before her wedding with about 10 people in the room, which side note on reading, I read that this has only been made illegal in the UK in July 2022 in the Health and Care Act, which is something I'm definitely going to be reading up on after this. Um, now, so that's the context of it. But as you said, interestingly, a lot of critics are touting that this as the new The Crown which I think is definitely fair. You can understand the similarities. Firstly, you have, in the opening episode, you have this huge, grand, luxurious wedding scene between the emperor and the soon-to-be empress, which very much rings true to the early wedding scene you have in the first series of The Crown um, between the Queen and Prince Philip. And I think it's also symbolically very similar. The subjects are the same in that, on one hand, you know, their lives are visible and belong to the people and belong to the public. But then behind closed doors, they're actually utterly unknown. So a bit of a contradiction in, in personality. So to producers and directors that take on this sort of this sort of genre, their subjects are enigmas. So it's always a struggle for this sort of period drama to strike the balance between being accurate, but also being able to hold an audience without sort of tumbling into the, the documentary style 
of a program. Um, on a side note, I always find it, you know, when you, when I start to write my own things, I sort of read around and what, what are people saying about each, each show? And I find it quite fascinating how a lot of the talk around this was, oh, it's the new crown and it's the new this and the new that. I find it quite fascinating how we're so quick to move on. And as a culture, we move quite quickly, constantly trying to find the next best thing, you know, to play off that phrase, the new black, which is what I wrote about. Um, I remember reading a fantastic piece last year asking if the likes of Hollywood has essentially run out of stories in the pandemic era, era because it's full of reboots and remakes and sequels and sort of playing off stories that already exist and that we know so well. Um, although having said that, I have such a soft spot for the Top Gun recent re sequel, so I'll probably eat my words now. Um, but yeah, no, so there is a lot of chatter declaring this as the German version of, of The Crown, um, which does definitely feel like a, a credible comparison. Who's it for? Because The Crown, which inevitably I, I'd never seen, seems, seems to feed an insatiable global appetite for the modern-day-ish um, British royal family. But this would seem to be relatively niche. You know, I, I feel like I know my German history, but don't really know this story. Who do you think Netflix are pitching this at? Yeah, it's a good question. And I know what you mean about The Crown, because it's stuff, especially with, I think they've now recently announced the Series 5 is, is coming soon, which is, you know, as they progress in series, it's it's recent history it's you know stuff we all know so well and it's always hard to get into the head of producers on and directors and writers on things like this and who they really want their audience to be I think it's aimed at the younger generations um, almost ironically the Gen Z's the millennials because of the way they've played her and the sort of rebellious side to Elizabeth Elizabeth that we see she wants to in one scene sort of halfway through the series they you know, there's um, talk of rebellion amongst the people against the empire and against the royal court. And they do a trip to a factory to see what the conditions are like. And instead of, you know, following protocol and sort of keeping, you know, very a distance between her and the people, she wants to completely engage with the workers. She asks if she can actually go inside. Um, there's a scene where she sort of literally takes the shoes off her feet and gives them to or tries to give them to another girl. Um, now, naturally, some of that's taken with a creative license, but you do see her trying to sort of change the empire from within. Um, and we do know from history that she was sort of quite eccentric. She tried to keep as much to herself as she could. She was known to wear face masks of, of raw veal to preserve her beauty. She drank wine with breakfast. I mean, we've all been there. Um, she religiously worked out three times a day with barbells and things like that. Um, she was also, in terms of breaking protocol, she was known to shirk off her royal protection, which arguably may have led to her own demise when she was she was assassinated in, in Switzerland. Um, again, almost from that angle, being touted as their own version of a Diana figure um, that people relate to or sort of the younger generations relate to. And Diana's you know, legacy 25 years on after her death, very much still alive, which I wrote about in The New European a few months ago. Um, and interestingly, you know, beyond that, the Empress is almost having its own sort of pop culture moment, as Diana did with with Kirsten Stewart and Spencer recently. Um, the Empress is getting its own sort of feature film called Corsage. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival and it's going to be out this festive season, I believe. Um, and on that note of pop culture, be it sort of reimaginings of history or just complete imaginings of that sort of era, such as, you know, in lockdown, we had things like the Bridgerton series and soon to have its own spin-off. There's definitely a hype around that sort of drama and the period 
genre recently. So I think it makes sense that, you know, this German series, The Empress, it seeks to seeks to profit and, and benefit off the back of that. But moving, you know, from from history into, you know, tech and new developments, Matt, you've you've written online this week about the new exhibition at London's Imperial War Museum, which was about how wars portrayed in, in video games and new video games. Tell us, let's pick your brains about that. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, which is which is a history in itself, I suppose. You know, video games go back forty years. I, I was very lucky to get a personal um, tour of this new exhibition. It's in the Imperial War Museum in London, and it depicts how um, well how war has been depicted over four decades of video games. Also, through the aspect of our video games art, which I I would argue that they that they are now that um, modern games with their you know their, their budgets which are as big as Hollywood blockbusters detailed plot lines you know front absolute first rank actors appearing and every bit of value the form of storytelling is films or TV or or visual art with the addition of it allows the player to guide the action now I think I've mentioned on, on the podcast before I consider myself very much a, a retro gamer I um I, I like games kind of up until the kind of mid to late late 90s and still you know still tend to collect and play them now but if you look at the modern games um something like 2020's The Last of Us Part 2 which holds the record for the most game of the year awards that really was praised not for its necessarily its playability or, or its action although that as well, but it's depictions of empathy and grief and anger, you know, complex emotions, um, which suggested real artistic insight. As I wrote in the piece, though, even if you move away from the the highbrow art house games, really, other titles have had huge aesthetic impact, you know, and I, I kind of muse on whether the instantly recognisable style and palette of the Super Mario Brothers games, whether they were actually any less influential than, say, the, the works of Roy Lichtenstein. I'm not being trite there. I think you could make... You could make that argument. So it's a very interesting exhibition at the IWM, um, probably the world's first on how war is represented in in video games. And I, I did get to have a walk around it with uh, Ian Kikuchi, who's a historian and actually the museum's senior curator for the Second World War and mid-20th century. But he's also a big gamer himself, and he said it occurred to him back in 2016 when they had an exhibition about the depictions of war in film that, that it was just as valid to do the same with, with video games and he talks about how every generation has its defining technology that tells stories about war so in the Crimean war photography was very new and people got to see these these um pictures from the front line um at home for the first time at the time of the first world war film and cinema were there Radio came in in the 20s and you had broadcasts from the Second World War and TV in the Cold War went hand in hand. So by the 70s, once computers start getting into people's homes and arcades, it's natural to see video games start to talk about war also. And so this exhibition kind of traces from the early um, arcade games and 8-bit computers through to the... Uh, realistic modern how um video games what we used to call them programmers creators I, I guess now have used that medium to depict war i have to admit my my knowledge of video games it does sounds nowhere near as good as yours um doesn't really extend far beyond mario kart um which i was also never very good at either um but it's interesting reading your piece and, and what you were just saying there that the developments in it can seem to be vast and continuing all the time. I found it interesting what you were saying about this game, um, Bury Me My Love, which is the one that's almost focuses on like the human cost of war. And it's this, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a messaging game that plays out in in real time. So you can put your phone down, wake up, and then you've got messages from the main character from Noor, I think, who's the wife in the game, you know, discussing her route out of 
um, I believe, was it Syria? Um, And yeah, so is that where the format's going? Sort of more, almost, I don't know how to describe it, but much more lifelike, more control in the hands of the player. I know that's not specifically, because there's been apps before that have done that sort of element where you have choices of where you can go sort of thing. But is that where the format of games, or especially war in video games, is going? Yeah, I think there's two aspects to that. One is um, now uh, games do look photo realistic. You know, you watch, um, you you go into a room and watch somebody playing um, FIFA. It's entirely possible you might be there for minutes before you realise that is not a televised football match. That is one that's been created by computers because it looks almost identical now, given the, the, the processing power of modern computers and consoles to create games that look exactly the same as real life. And in this exhibition, you can see one of the levels from Call of Duty Modern Warfare. It's a terrorist attack on Piccadilly Circus. And the level of detail is astonishing. You know, it, it, it it's an absolute perfect rendition. And it makes the game actually terrifying. You know, the sort of games I was playing growing up um, you know, they did not look like real life. They were eight bit. They were blocky. They were sprites. Uh, nowadays, the creators have the budget and the, the the processing power to make things that look exactly like real life. Um, this game you mentioned, very moment I love, is is particularly interesting. This doesn't look like that. It looks it looks like WhatsApp, basically. But it's interesting because it's it's moving into telling the stories of um, the victims of war, the, the displaced of war, rather than what it was once upon a time, which were very almost cartoonish, good guys versus bad guys, um, you know, allied versus Nazis. This this game in particular, it is one where you are the husband of somebody, as you say, and she's trying to find her way to Europe. And you are, through this messaging app, advising as best as you can to help her reach the destination. But of course, you can only advise, you know, this this character this woman has got agency of her own and she can choose to take the advice she may choose not necessarily to do and how she does that because it's it's a very complicated piece of um of ai and when uh, in kikuchi played the game for the first time he was telling me how his wife character died of hyperfermia after a river crossing and it had an unexpectedly strong effect on him. And he sat, he sat there for a while wondering whether he should restart it and have another go to see if he can get a better ending. But he thought, no, because he played the game seriously and he tried to make the best choices that he could. And that was how it ended. And he felt like the game was telling him something about the reality of that journey. Uh, and I quote the great American film critic, Roger Eber in the piece. He, he famously said that cinema was a machine that generates empathy. And actually you could argue that downloading this game onto your phone, that's literally what you have in your hands. I've never, yeah, I have to admit, I've never thought about that. And it does seem that messaging aspect of it, it does seem to take it in a very surreal and new, a new direction. Um, and like you say, actually, when you get into that way of it, it is quite unnerving. Like you say, what the terrorist attack on Piccadilly Circus and things like that. That, yeah, I don't think I'd struggle to see things like that and not get a little bit unsettled by it all. Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, that, that game in particular is uh, is quite um, it is it is genuinely unsettling in, in a way that um, that perhaps video games of the past simply didn't have the, the power to do. So, yes, if people uh, are in, in London or, or they're visiting the, the exhibition is called War Games, Real Conflicts, Virtual Worlds, Extreme Entertainment. Uh, it runs until May the 23rd next year. So you've got plenty of time. And at the end of it, you know, there's a room with plenty of retro consoles in there and you can kind of um, blow off some steam and, and play on them. So, uh, yes, highly recommended. 
Now for this week's interview, talking about her excellent profile of Home Secretary Suella Braverman, it's the new European's very own Claire Nichanella. Claire, how are you? Hi, Matt. I'm very well, thanks. Well, thanks for joining the New European podcast. Uh, in issue 312 of the New European, you've written the front page article with the headline, What the Hell is Wrong with Suella Braverman? So I suppose my first question is, what the hell is wrong with Suella Braverman? I think you and quite a lot of the nation, actually. Um, so it all stemmed from her appearance at the uh, Tory conference in Birmingham, where um, among many inflammatory things that uh, the new Home Secretary said was her uh, admission, if you like, that her dream was to um, see a plane taking off to Rwanda um, with refugees. And she said, that's my dream. That's my obsession. Now, it was partly the content of what she said, and it was partly the way in which she said it. It was at a Telegraph Fringe event, and it didn't seem to cause much consternation in the room, but the reaction outside the room was instant, and it was visceral, because um, the, the sentiment itself was so disturbing. The way she made the remarks, with her hands stretched skywards, as if she was talking about, you know, flying off to Mallorca to have a lovely holiday by the sea. And I think this is what led to the article and unfortunately the answers to the questions of what what is wrong with Suella Braverman are complex and for the amateur psychologists among us it's not so much that it's in her background that you can find the answers but perhaps it's more in the political context and in ourselves in some ways. Yeah tell us a little bit about her upbringing because you write that uh, as you say there's little in it to explain her survival of the fittest ideology that portrays society's vulnerable as uh, simply one more problem to be solved is there? No, and in fact, you might argue that the opposite is true, in fact. Um, so Suella's parents um, were born outside the UK. So they're both of Indian origin. Her father was born in Nairobi in Kenya. There's a large Indian population, of course, in Kenya. But he was forced to leave that country in the late 60s um, when the independence movement was taking off. He had British citizenship, though, so he was able to come here. Her mother, that was uh, Christy Fernandez was his name. And her mother, Mother Uma. Now, she was also of Indian origin, but um, was living in Mauritius. And from there, she was recruited by the NHS to be a nurse here in the UK, again, coming here legally. Um, so Suella is sort of the first generation of her family born here. She was born in Harrow. She grew up in Wembley. Uh, she, she did very well at school. She went to the fee-paying Heathfield School in Pinner. She was on a partial scholarship. Um, her father, you know, in an interview recently with the Times of India described her as a trailblazer. She was good at hockey. She could play both offense and defense, which probably says something. And he said she was also very good at strategy. So, so far, you know, nothing seems to be traumatic there that would explain any resentment. And in fact, I think what some people found difficult about her comments was the lack of empathy from someone who herself has referred very directly, in fact, in her maiden speech when she was elected as an MP. MP for Farham, her maiden speech talked a lot about her father coming here to Britain and how grateful he was to come, but also how confused he felt when he first arrived here, ready to make a new life for himself in this country. So in some ways, it's quite difficult to understand why she takes such a hard line view on people who admittedly are not coming here legally, but 
have many of the same sentiments as they come to the UK. Um, and then as she um, grew older, she went to study law in Cambridge. She ended up on an Erasmus year in France, which is quite ironic since you can't do that anymore because of the Brexit she was so in favour of. And she ended up, um, you know, she uh, studied at the bar in New York and became a lawyer. Now, Sometimes, and as a child of uh, um, people who also came to the UK myself, I can say there can be a chip on people's shoulders. Um, and maybe there's a little bit of evidence in this where she, but it's not so much to do with her upbringing as with her politics. When she was a young lawyer um, at the start of her career, she does say she felt a certain stigma being a Tory lawyer in a Blairite world, if you like. She was the shy Tory, she says, in the chambers that were full of right-on lawyers at a time when Labour Party were just coming in to take power for 13 years. So maybe a little bitterness there, but nothing particularly in her background that would explain why uh, she has taken what someone consider very rightist positions, not only on immigration, but on other subjects as well. It's interesting you talk about her education because she did do very well. She read law at Queen's College, Cambridge. As you say, she did a master's degree in European law at the Pantheon Sorbonne University. Um, we on this side can sometimes be guilty of saying that the that the Brexiteers are stupid and sometimes justifiably so but we have to remember it's not a problem it's not a stupid woman is she not at all um and I think you know there is uh she's not alone in 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 that I mean you know quasi Quartang, the chancellor is also widely recognized to be a very bright man um I don't think Liz Truss is particularly stupid either um and I think what may be lacking, and um, there's a difference between intelligence and what they call EQ or emotional empathy. What does seem to be lacking from this particular wing of the Tory party that has now risen to the ascendancy and really stamped its mark somewhat disastrously on the party is the fact that they are not stupid, they have got their way, they are putting their vision of a very particular, very different Britain into practice. It's not going wrong because they're not smart. It's going wrong because perhaps they do not understand the effect on other people. And worse than that, they do not care. You put her very much, um, as you say there, in, in the context of the modern Conservative Party and what it has become. I mean, she she would have got nowhere um, in the party under David Cameron, say, would she? No, I don't think so. And. In fact, so she was elected as an MP in 2015, so just before the Brexit referendum. Her rise after that is pretty meteoric because she's still quite young. She's only 42. Um, but in 2018, in a reshuffle, she was made a junior minister for Brexit. So she's always championed Brexit. It's part of her, you know, her overall belief in resilience and sovereignty and small state, all of those things. So they, with Brexit, Braverman, along with other believers, other members of the European Research Group, which she chaired for some months in 2017, so she's also a member of the so-called Spartan Group, they suddenly saw an opportunity to put all of their beliefs into, into, into action. And so she was the Brexit 
she was a junior Brexit minister, but then she resigned over um, Theresa May's withdrawal bill when the Spartans brought about their rebellion against that, which is quite ironic since she was at the Tory party conference uh, last week complaining about those who had, um, those of her colleagues who were kind of fomenting a coup against Trust because of Liz Trust because of her tax plans. However, she has not been shy of going against the leadership before. And then when she resigned, she was then elevated quite suddenly to the position of attorney general for uh, Boris Johnson. And that is where she stayed until he left in disgrace. And she was the first person to put her hat in the ring to succeed him. So her rise has been quite meteoric. And it sort of also coincides with this drift of the Conservative Party through Brexit to the right. And I think, you know, it all goes down to this massive miscalculation that David Cameron did when he called the referendum, which in essence was an effort to um, outflank the movement of Nigel Farage and the Brexiteers, hoping that by bringing the referendum, they could, you know, stamp down that sort of anti-immigrant, far right sort of tendency and make sure that it didn't damage the party. But instead what they got is they lost the David Cameron side lost the referendum you got Brexit and therefore the rise of the people who had championed Brexit became inevitable I, I was depressed when um, football has started becoming younger than me and you just reminded yeah. me that our home secretary is now younger than me which is quite galling to think about um, her leadership campaign is it over? Because she seems to be doing an awful lot of freelancing at the moment. She seems to have single-handedly destroyed the chances of a trade deal with India with some uh, ill-judged comments. Uh, just in the past couple of days, she suggested heaping yet more work on the creaking justice system and depleted police by making cannabis a class A drug. These seem to me like the comments of somebody still running a leadership campaign. Well, Matt, would you blame her? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, the idea that there's going to be no vacancy seems a little far-fetched. So I would say, you know, just looking at the evidence, as you say, her outspoken comments have scuppered, it would seem for now, the India trade deal. And it's not something you would normally do so soon into your new job as Home Secretary, one would think. However, it would seem also that um, perhaps Liz Truss is somewhat aware of this because The Sun reported that uh, Braverman is being cut out of the loop on the plans for visa reform. So maybe, you know, the idea that she is sort of stirring trouble is also there in Liz, in the back of Liz Truss's mind behind all the other catastrophes that she has in the front of her mind. So I would imagine... And also just looking at Sue, uh, Bra Braverman's background, her de devotion to politics is long-standing. Her mother was a councillor for 16 years for Brent Council. She's uh, Her father in this interview with the Times of India said she always wanted to be prime minister. You know, she is ambitious. It would be a foolish, ambitious person who would be in her position now and not see the chaos at the top of the party as an opportunity. So yeah. I would imagine also, sorry, and just to say, you know, she was feted at the Tory party conference. The Telegraph called her true blue Braverman, um, which is quite difficult to say. Um, but, you know, there is, a, there is a certain segment of the party for whom she is a darling, for whom she is an attractive candidate. And 
one imagines that she is quite happy to use that to move forward. She's never been shy about putting herself forward. You write that her declarations make her predecessor Pretty Patel look caring, which is uh, quite quite something. Well, I suppose Patel tried the same thing as well. You know, she played a lot to the to the back benches and to the right wing press, and it didn't quite play out for her as I think she possibly intended. Do you think it might be different with Bradman? Could we see her in number ten? I think. So still a stretch I think she'll try I mean it's very hard to call at the moment and I know this is a Weasley sort of thing to say but um, just even watching the news this morning there is talk now of a U-turn uh, another U-turn um, which probably makes up a circle at this point I'm not sure uh, on the mini budget about corporation tax I mean uh, the Prime Minister and her Chancellor are basically blocked into a corner where they have to do something now to settle the markets before we have the end of the Bank of England uh, guarantee for the buybacks of bonds um, on Friday. So, you know, the, 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 the chaos has not yet played out. I think the question will be, who wins this battle for the soul of the Tory party? There is a possibility or there is, I suppose, a future where Braverman could rise to the top. But depending on how grave the damage is from this sort of experimental dash into the sort of libertarian policies of these uh, think tanks that seem to have shored up this crazy one month long sort of um, experiment in uh, fiscal rectitude, you know, depending where that ends up, will it be the more stable heads that take control or will they go for another push to an even more extreme position? And would Braverman be someone they might consider? Sobering thoughts indeed. Claire, thanks for joining the New European podcast. To read Claire and our new Home Secretary, pick up issue 312 of the New European at Newsstands now. Subscribe and you get access to all Claire's pieces for TNE. For our special deal for podcast listeners, subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Ellie, what stood out for you in what Claire was saying there? Yeah, no, it's it's a great piece um, from Claire that's in issue 312 and also also online. I remember joking with her after she wrote it that, you know, remind me never to get on your on your bad side, Claire, or sound, from the sounds of it, Suella's for that matter, whose name ironically rhymes with Cruella. I think we've we've mentioned in pages two and three of, of the paper this week um, is I mean, yeah, it is just bizarre what she said, what she said at the around the time of the Tory conference that her dream was to have that front page with the plane to Rwanda on it like it really is. I mean, quite bizarre. I know we joked on it on the podcast and in the Hall of Shame last week that it's no, you know, Martin Luther King and things like that. But, it, you know, joking aside, it's quite strange. Um, and Clara's right. It really is this sort of new, strange brand of cruel, especially when we consider that before we had Pretty Patel and now we've gone into sort of very new, new further on territory again. Um, yeah. And it's interesting what you were mentioning earlier. You know, will we... Is it time that will we ever see Suella Braveman in number 10? I mean, at least I hope not. Um, but then, as you say, you announced at the beginning of the podcast, the date is October 13th. At the moment, Liz Truss is still is still hanging on in there. Um, we wait and see if we have any more U-turns or as um, as it was described last week as a uh, change of direction or course correction rather than a U-turn. Yes, absolutely. I suspect we will. And that would seem to be a very good time to delve into the Hall of Shame 
where we put malignant ministers, bogus backbenchers and poisonous pundits and other things that annoy us. So I'm starting once again in the pages of the very silly Daily Telegraph. And this week, it's leading crackpot pro-trust cheerleader Alistair Heath, who used his column on Thursday to say the only problem with the mini-budget was it did too many good things too fast. Quarting's mini-budget contained a wonderful collection of pro-growth policies, he wrote. But being in an understandable rush, Truss and her Chancellor moved too quickly. He advises... With very little to lose, Truss and Quarteng should roll the dice again. We are in a crisis, so they should launch regular COVID-style televised briefings, but this time on the economy with a dose of geopolitics. Yes, that should work. Show the public more trusts. And also in the Hall of Shame is the Conservative MP Christopher Chope, who listeners may remember is the man who decided the political hill on which he was prepared to die was blocking a bill to make upskirting a specific criminal offence. Talking to Times Radio on Thursday, he confidently predicted, if I was a betting man, I would now be going out and putting money on the Conservatives winning the next general election. Not with a landslide, but certainly with a good majority. We should say the value of Christopher Chope's betting advice can go down as well as up. Ellie, who are you putting in the Hall of Shame? Yeah, some very good candidates there, Matt. And yeah, as you say, I will not be taking that betting advice anytime, anytime soon, especially as we're in a cost of living crisis and every every penny matters. Um, yeah, so first up for me in the Hall of Shame this week is Theresa Coffey. On Tuesday, the Health Secretary doubled down on her position on nursing strikes. She claimed that the government had already helped NHS staff with the cost of living crisis, so there was no need for a discussion over any pay increase. On the same day, when asked about government policies such as ditching home targets for affordable homes, she responded that she had no idea about any of that. And to be fair, I don't know why she was being asked. It's not like she's also the deputy prime minister or anything. Oh, wait, she is. Uh, this week, she was also rumoured to said that she had no intention to honour the promise of publishing a tobacco control plan later this year, despite the government saying they had committed to it several times previously, and also despite the fact that the UK is seven years behind its smoke-free target. Um, and from the Lee Anderson and Jake Berry School of Thought, which rests on the idea to fix financial inequalities by telling people to stop being poor, she said on BBC Radio 4 that poor people are actually richer than you think. All in all, an excellent week for coffee. Uh, and joining her for me is also Jacob Rees-Mogg. He claims that market turmoil is not linked to the mini-budget. It's actually more to do with interest rates rather than a minor part of fiscal policy. I know we've been calling it the mini-budget, but I feel it's fair to say that this economic policy or policies is being viewed as literally anything other than minor. Um, he continues to say, and I quote, jumping to conclusions about causality is not meeting the BBC's requirement for impartiality. So silly us, it's actually all the BBC's fault, naturally. That was the New European Podcast with Matt Withers and Eleanor Longman Rood. Thank you for listening and thanks to our producer, John Dakin. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. That's the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European podcast, please subscribe. Oh, and give us nice ratings and lovely reviews. You can join our Facebook readers group or follow us on Twitter at the New European. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Withers, 
Ellie, can we follow you on Twitter? You can, at E underscore Longman Until the next time you meet, it's goodbye from Ellie. Goodbye. And from me, see you next week. <laughs>